0: Welcome to Pocket Guide to Hell, the radio show, where we explore the intersections of art, politics, and culture as illuminated by Chicago's past. Along the way, we talk with fine folks doing the work of keeping the past present and show you the places where the city's history resides today.
1: Near the end of the 19th century, a visiting laborer leader called Chicago a, quote, pocket edition of hell. Asked if that was fair, he took in the corruption, inequality, and general nastiness and said, quote, on second thought, hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. But these are the stories, the people and places that nudge us a bit closer to heaven.
0: So Elliot, say you're part of an organization that for decades has been championing and fighting for a particular cause, and then you finally achieve what you've been working for for a long long time. What do you do next? I would
1: definitely go to vaca- uh, on
0: vacation. <laughs> well, that's one thing that you could do. Yeah, go on vacation. Just me, that's just make a break. We <laughs> have a long struggle. Uh, or you could, you know, pack up your bags and go home. Or you can kind of change your direction and your mission a little bit because all work generally stays unfinished to some degree and kind of moving forward. And that's the situation that was confronting various suffrage organizations 100 years ago, even here within the city of Chicago. Uh, So on the 2nd of October, 1920, when the 19th Amendment had already been ratified and it was clear that women were gonna get the right to vote all across the country, an organization called the Chicago Political Equality League, which counted among its members such figures as Jane Addams of Hull House fame and the journalist and activist Ida B. Wells. Uh, the Chicago Political Equality League held a big event at the Congress Hotel on Michigan Avenue. It still stands today in the uh, Florentine Room. It's a very nice room. Um, where they formally transformed themselves into the Chicago League of Women Voters. Uh, Now, a little bit earlier in the year, uh, sort of national suffrage organizations had come together to form the National League of of Women Voters. And basically what these groups sought to do is now that we had a whole expansion of the electorate, all these women who are gonna be voting for the first time across the country, it was gonna help them figure out like how to vote and what sort of issues and what sort of candidates they might wanna support. And it was like strictly, you know, non
1: So political equality had been
0: achieved. Well, not quite, <laughs> okay, right? Okay, okay. Uh, you know, some women, you know, were able to participate in that, that first presidential election for which the uh, 19th amendment was, you know, in place. And that was, you know, in November of, of 1920. Uh, but many other women, particularly women of color continued to sort of face challenges and sort of exercising the franchise. And then this would become something that one would have to continue to fight for throughout the course of the 20th century. And even now into the 21st, and to talk to us uh, about the work that the League of Women Voters of Chicago has been doing to kind of get women involved, but also to protect their voices and their votes is the board president of the league, Ann Jameson. Hi, Ann. how are you doing today?
2: I'm good. How are you?
0: Uh, Doing well. Um, and I imagine uh, that this is a very busy time of year for the League of Women Voters of Chicago with the general election on November 3rd, just about two weeks away. So we thank you for taking the time to to talk with us. Um, What what are you up to these days?
2: Well, so we've got a lot of different things going on right now. Um, Obviously, the uh, voter registration deadline for voter registrars has passed. Now we're moving to more briefings to inform the electorate, make sure everyone knows what's on their ballot. Um, IllinoisVoterGuide.org is online. That's done by the State League, but is a really great resource to find out who's on your ballot, especially here in Cook County where we have, like, 70 judges to vote on. Yep. Um, and that can be really overwhelming. Um, but when you go on there, you can see who is endorsed how people have uh, um, judged the judges, as it were, to retain them. And you can get some really good information through there. So we're moving more to the get-out-the-vote efforts and uh, voter information efforts. H-
1: have you seen, uh, like, the numbers of people who are registered? Has that has that gone up? Because we've been hearing that there's a lot more people who are engaged this year. Have you seen that from your end?
2: So I haven't seen specifically um, the voter registration numbers recently, I can tell you that um, at the last Chicago Board of Election meeting, they mentioned that they have 460,000 vote-by-mail applications, Uh Um, and of those applications, which are way more than they normally see in an election cycle, 125,000 have already been returned, so we're really on track with the mail-in ballots.
0: Well, I mean, it seems like a really kind of daunting task, but I mean, that's sort of I mean, the mission of, of the League of Women Voters of, of Chicago is to help kind of voters navigate this process and, and, and get their voices mm-hmm. heard. Um, yeah. at, the, at the beginning of this episode, I was talking a little bit about uh, the history behind the League uh, because, you know, it was in early October when what had been the Chicago Political Equality League uh, formally transformed itself into the Chicago League of Voters. Uh, and as the board president of, of the League, of Women Voters of Chicago today, um, looking back a century ago to not only the end of the suffrage movement, but to the creation of the league. And I should point out, you know, this was also around the time when the the National League of Women Voters formed Mm -hmm. as well. Um, Like, what do you think are are some of the kind of like lessons or legacies of that moment and that that feel like relevant today? Uh, Does that history have something to tell us about kind of where we are as as voters, and, and particularly um, like something to tell uh, women voters and about the important role that they kind of play in this process.
2: Yeah, um, for sure. There's definitely a lot of like legacies and lessons from from the suffrage movement, and one of them that I think of a lot is that you have to fight for your right to vote. Like no one's going to hand it to you on a silver platter. Um, and one thing that we think about is a lot of people think suffrage ended in 1920 when women got the right to vote but that's really not the case in many instances the suffrage movement continues today um, most women of color didn't gain the right to vote until 1965 when the Voting Rights Amendment was uh, Voting Rights Act was passed and even today when some of those key provisions were struck down we still see voter suppression across the country um, it's everything from where you hear about the long polling lines in Georgia and Kentucky in Wisconsin um, So voter suppression and the movement for suffrage is still ongoing. But realistically, so one of my very first memories was my mom taking me to vote. This is a story I love to tell because I was maybe like two and she took me to vote with her and I sat at her feet while she filled out her ballot. And then on the way home, like I have this distinct memory of being like in my stroller and she was telling me about how Alice Paul was force fed in jail because she was on a hunger strike to get women the right to vote. So that's something that has always been really important to me is the fact that I wasn't given the right to vote. Women before me and women today fought, fought for my right to vote. And so that's like an important legacy that I carry with me when I go into this fight as well and think about what I can be doing to increase suffrage um, in Illinois and in the country.
1: Have you witnessed a uh, greater sort of awareness of of the difficulties, uh, potential difficulties of voting, you know, over the past two, three, four years? Uh, for instance, because I imagine that this is something that uh, a lot of times we say, oh yeah, there's low participation rates, you know, like there's all these different ways of voting suppression going on, but like it's hard, oftentimes, to get people to to kind of get worked up about it, to do to do something about it. Has that changed this year?
2: Yeah, so um, I'm obviously a denizen of Twitter because we live in this age of social media. Um, So it's been interesting to see kind of like the national connection. I think we're very lucky in Illinois. I moved here in 2012 for graduate school and ended up staying. I grew up in Michigan, and Mm -hmm. Michigan has actually recently done a really good job expanding their voting options. Um, It wasn't until the 2018 election that they had early voting or no reason absentee ballots. Uh, like we have here in Illinois, so in Illinois we've been very lucky. But nationally, it's been interesting to kind of see more and more people become aware. Um, especially like recently, I think maybe it was like in the last couple of weeks, as people as people have started early voting in different states, to see people on Twitter basically say, "Oh." Like, that's so great. Like, they were willing to wait in line for seven hours. And then other people finally be like, well, they shouldn't have to wait in line for seven hours. That means there's not enough polling sites.
0: Right. I mean, I, gosh, I mean, looking back at those, you know, first uh, federal elections in November of 1920, I almost feel in some ways, like, not just women voters, but voters in general had an easier time with the process than we do a century yeah. later. I'm i a little curious. I mean, I'm curious, because you just mentioned that you, you moved to the Chicago area in, in 2012. <laughs> Um, Had you been involved with the the, the League of Women Voters, like, other chapters prior to that? Or was it really when you kind of moved here? Like, what drew you to the League and its sort of mission?
2: Right. So um, I was 22 when I moved here. I'm now 30. (laughs) So I wasn't necessarily thinking that much about, uh, beyond my personal vote, what I could be doing when I moved here. So I wasn't involved with the League in Michigan or anywhere else. Um, what really kicked my butt in the gear was uh, the 2016 election and seeing all the misinformation flying around and the ways that people were being, um, were being messed with, basically, uh, as we let, led up to that election. So I actually joined the League in early 2017 after that election because I wanted something to do. And what really um, drew me to the League was its history, and I loved the sense of, like, this is a 100-year-old organization that was founded uh, by original suffrage suffragists, um, But I also love to focus on research. Um, my paying job is I'm a librarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm a big fan of facts and using those facts to inform people of things. <laughs> um, so the fact that the League was very involved in voter registration and get out the votes, but also in that important aspect of informing the electorate of different issues and the stances of candidates and doing um, research on different things and coming up with stances, that really was what drew me to. It sounds so boring to be like, oh, it's the research, but that's my-
0: <laughs> I mean, particularly too, at this point in time, people are experiencing a kind of um, crisis of faith in institutions. Um, but, I mean, you clearly recognize the sort of continued value of, of the league and then what it can accomplish. In terms of this current election cycle, What sort of strategies are you um, employing to kind of try to get, like, new women voters sort of involved in in this process?
2: Well, um, so with new women voters, and especially, like, younger voters, um, I was looking at some statistics to prepare for this interview. Uh, The Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement did a study in June that said 83% of young people believe that young people have an effect in this election. Mm. Um, So that's, like, a really... Amazing amount of voter engagement right there, um, and a lot of them point to COVID. Uh, seventy seventy nine percent said that COVID was foundational in understanding that politics impacted their everyday lives. Um, so when it comes to reaching out to communities, we kind of go where we're asked to go, and we also ask to go. In a normal year, we would be in the high schools registering eighteen newly uh, newly uh, new voters, eighteen year olds. Um, we go to the community colleges to register voters. COVID has kind of had an interesting effect on our outreach, so it's mostly online. But like, So I went to and spoke at the Illinois Youth Climate Movement Day of Action um, Climate Classroom to kind of get out the information on how to vote, and we just kind of go everywhere and give people that information, just like, here's how you vote, here's how easy it is, um, come and join us, here's how you find out more. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was gonna say I'm also as super interested in uh, your emphasis on sort of down ballot voting as well because that's a, you know anybody who talks to me knows that I, I talk a lot about Cook County judges. <laughs> um, precisely, oh, yeah. <laughs> for, yeah, precisely for the reason that we they, they have such a great impact on on sort of many Chicagoans' lives and 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 we basically know. Nothing usually as voters uh, going in there. And, and, and I think it's evidenced by the fact that, you know, when we had uh, the Coughlin, uh, Matthew Coughlin was, was um, recalled, that was one of the first times since, you know, 30 years or something like that, that a judge had ever been recalled. You, do you think that there's when you're talking to people a lot? Obviously, there's a lot of people who are coming out because of sort of the big federal and state elections. But what's the type of response when you talk to people about like, oh, hey, pay attention to your judges or pay attention to the Water Reclamation District elections? You know, is there is there does the, do the eyes glaze over there or is that or is that part of this fervor for voting? Um, so definitely, like when you say like, hey, like have you thought
2: about your judges at all, people? definitely have not. So they're just stated like, why would I think about that? And then when you see the number, it's extremely daunting. Um, and that's kind of where, like, you have to kind of convince them that it's important. So like, I always talk about who keeps your, the lights on on your street. Like, that's your alderman. Like, who, who's deciding yeah. who goes to jail? That's a judge. Um, who's deciding how the um, sanitation works and wh- how water gets brought back into the Chicago River? It's the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District like the president, presidential races, federal races, those are often kind of the races people focus on, and it's a really great opportunity to get people to the polls because they're so interested in those national races. But then the challenge is getting them to realize that those local races are the ones that are really going to affect
0: you
2: yeah. on like a block-by-block block basis.
0: Yeah, I was going to kind of follow up on that a little bit and kind of, I mean, from the sort of league's perspective like what are some very, because you are the, the League of Women Voters of Chicago, like what are some very kind of like local issues that you think are, are kind of important to you know, our communities here and in Chicago and, and Cook County that you really hope that voters are like thinking about and, and considering beyond the sort of spectacle that is the the you know the presidential election at the federal level? Right,
2: yeah. So I definitely want people to pay attention to those judges. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the retainer vote. Okay. Uh, We're very lucky that every six years, Illinois is allowed to basically say, do we want to keep you as a judge? And so it's definitely important to kind of like go in and do your research. And the way I usually do it is I look and the Illinois voter guide will tell you, you know, who says a qualified, highly qualified or not qualified. And, usually I try to streamline the process by first looking for anyone who says not qualified and starting to do my research there. Um, So that's super important. The really, really big issue that the League of Women Voters, Illinois and Chicago have been working on this election cycle is the fair tax. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's definitely something, and we have endorsed it. So full disclosure, we endorse the fair tax. Um, The idea that, the, idea, the thing that's on the actual ballot is a constitutional amendment. Uh, right now, the Illinois Constitution mandates a flat tax, and by voting yes for the fair tax, you would be saying, we don't want this in the Constitution anymore, which then gives us a lot more leeway to change what our tax structures look like. Part of the issue we've had in Illinois for the past 30 years or so is that as our debts have piled up, we have not been able to affect what what the tax structure looks like. So as debts pile up, we have to spend less money on social services and infrastructure because we have to pay those debts first. Um, Separately from that, the Illinois Assembly has passed a graduated rate income tax. So a lot of this is getting part and parcel together. The actual thing you're voting on is a constitutional amendment. But if it passes, J.B. Pritzker will sign into law a graduated rate income tax. Uh, a new tax structure for a new era, I guess, in Illinois. Mm -hmm.
0: So what would, sticking with this issue just for a moment, and and this is a Chicago history focused program, so we're not going to get overly political, Um, but you know, there has been a a lot of, you know, also opposition to this proposal of adopting a a fair tax coming from some, you know, fairly well-connected interests and even from, you know, Publications like the Chicago Tribune, and you know one of the criticisms is is by like amending the Constitution this way, this will open up the opportunity for the uh, General Assembly to, you know, create all sorts of new taxes, right, and all sorts of new. Um, so I think the latest thing that people are talking about is like re- taxing retirement income. So I mean, what is the sort of like League's response to this critique or or uh, criticism of the proposed yeah. amendment?
2: Well, so, so the first thing is taxation on retirement income has never been on the table. That's the scare tactic that people mm. who have opposed this have been using. Um, but like taxation of retirement income has never been something that they've even considered. So people can rest assured that, that they're not coming for your, your retirement income. Um, the important thing to remember when it comes to a, a different tax structure is as things change in Illinois, we need to be able to be flexible enough to move with it. Um, when you're stuck with a constitutional amendment that says flat tax only, we can't respond to changing crises. And we can't respond to changes in our income and in our, and in our status as a state. Um, so when it comes to, like, this particular fair tax, like, the graduated rate income tax that was passed by the Illinois Assembly, it's not going to fix all of our problems. Like, that, that's never, it's a revenue-generating Not necessarily, so people who make under $250,000 a year will see a slight tax deduction, like reduction. So Mm -hmm. I will pay slightly less in taxes than I would have otherwise. But realistically, what this is is trying to do is generate more income from those higher income earners. Um, Yes, it would technically make, uh, the, the assembly would have more control over what our tax structure looks like, but the good news of that is, we still have to vote for those members. So if they try to do something, they will feel it in the ballot box. Mm-hmm. If they try to do something that people don't like.
1: And again, like Illinois is one of very few states that has mm-hmm. flat tax, and and this is going back to the constitution of what 1970.
2: Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: So we're we're definitely not normal in this process. Nor has it uh, has it always been like that for this for the state.
0: No. Correct. Yes. <laughs> That's one thing, yes. The state has had several constitutions in the course of its history, which is interesting, too, because we've always, we're at a point, too, where we think of these documents as being fairly fixed. Um, But, I mean, even the ratification of the 19th Amendment in August 1920 reminds us that things can change, (laughs) About these kind of foundational (laughs) documents. Um, So I've got a couple more questions. Um, So one thing, you know, clearly you know a lot about voting and and, and understand the process and then the impact that it could have, particularly around issues like the fair tax. Um, But through your work with the the League of Women Voters of Chicago, is there one thing that you wish like more voters understood just about the process itself that might make things easier for them?
3: Um,
2: Yeah, I really wish that people understood just how easy it is to vote here, actually. Um, like, I, I fell prey to this. I mentioned that I moved here in 2012, and I moved here in August of 2012. And at the time in Michigan, I was registered to vote, but it was really hard to get an absentee ballot. And so I was trying to figure out how to register to vote here in Illinois, and I just, I was new to grad school. I was new to the area. I just thought it was harder than it actually was. Like, I didn't realize things like I could go to any early voting site and register to vote and immediately vote or even if i missed that on election day all i had to do is find my home precinct and i could register to vote right there and vote um, so i really want people to understand that it may it can seem daunting and some sometimes it it sounds way more daunting than it actually is especially in a state like illinois where we do have so many options for our vote to, to be counted we like mail in we have um, you know, in-person early voting, voting on the day of election. It, it's really nice to, to know how easy it is to vote and I just want people to know that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh, have you voted already? <laughs>
2: yeah. So okay. I, Yeah, I'm actually gonna be working as an election judge on election day. So I got a mail-in ballot and I sent it back in and I just checked my status yesterday and it's been, it's made it back to the Board of Elections. So I'm just waiting to make sure my signature matches, yep. um, which that's a whole other process because they have people doing that every day, like, looking at these. And they have so many more mail-in ballots, than they had last election cycle. Um, but, yeah, so I voted by mail. That was my choice because I was hoping to and successfully i am going to be an election judge on actual election day. All
0: right. That's great. But I
2: love voting (laughs) in person, (laughs) so it was kind of sad. I was like, okay, I'm going to vote by mail. It's the pandemic, and I want to work as an election judge, but I, like, love going into polling sites and voting, so I'm really glad I still get to have that experience on the other end of the table as an election judge Um, because there's something really, like, heartwarming to me about, like, walking into that polling station and standing at your little, your um, standing in the, at the, about box and filling it out and putting it in. I love the
0: process. <laughs> <laughs> and this, I mean, I think is probably going to be one of the most unique elections in, in, in the history of, of the Republic that we, we can be anticipating. Yeah, uh, We've been talking a lot about, you know, everything that's l- going to lead up to it and then the issues that are confronting <laughs> voters. But I guess my question now for you is it's November 4th, 2020. Like <laughs> what do you think, you know, as the board president of the League of Women Voters of Chicago, like, what do you expect that, that the league will be doing, you know, post November 3rd um, between, you know, this upcoming election and, and the next elections to be held?
2: So with the number of mail-in ballots this cycle, I suspect on November 4th, we will be telling people Don't worry, the results aren't in yet, (laughs) Um, to be honest, because some states have to wait until the day before to start counting those mail-in ballots or the date of the election. So I highly doubt we're going to have a final uh, election result on November 3rd. But beyond November 4th, um, to be honest, the thing we'll be focusing on next is advocacy around who has been elected. Um, One of the things the league does is put out calls to action and so Chicago puts out state, um, Chicago-level calls to action. And then there's the county-level, state-level, national. So national will probably go into gear to uh, for whichever administration is uh, coming into power in January to start advocating on behalf of the issues that we care about. Um, and then beyond that, we'll be starting to focus, honestly, on the next election cycle because it always comes up quicker than you think it's going to. <laughs>
0: Great. Well, this, I mean, this all sounds really wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, I want to wish the, the League of Women Voters of Chicago and the National League of Women Voters a happy 100th anniversary. Um, you guys can't be celebrating it in a more singular way. <laughs> than with uh, This probably going to be an election yeah. that will still, this particular 2020 election will probably be one that we'll still be talking about 100 years from now. <laughs> um, but but thank you, uh, Anne, for, for talking with us today and uh, really quickly before we go once again if like people want to become involved with the league or learn more, like where, th- where should they go?
2: Right, Leah, thank you so much for ha- having me first of all. And just as like a quick aside, if people are interested in voting exactly 100 years after the first women were able to vote on. It, uh, in a federal election, vote on November 2nd. So vote one day early, and you will mm-hmm. be exactly 100, 100 years. Right. Um, you can find out more about the League of Women Voters of Chicago specifically by going to my.lwv.org slash Illinois Chicago. Um, it's kind of a little bit of an annoying <laughs> uh, website, so you can also just, if you Google search, League of Women Voters Chicago, you'll find us. There's a little join button if you are interested in membership and becoming more involved in the work that we're doing. And there's also a donate button if you are interested in just supporting us financially.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, uh, Anne, for talking yeah, with thank us. You. This was, like, a lot of fun. Yeah. We learned a lot, and Thank uh, you. yeah, we all look forward to voting yeah. if we haven't already. May we all survive the election. May we all survive the election, <laughs> all right, okay. Yeah,
2: if we all survive the election, yeah. <laughs> I'm right. sure we'll survive it, <laughs> yes. it's what
0: true. happens after, right? <laughs> yes. Right, that's true. All right, well, take well. care. So the League of Women Voters of Chicago had previously been the Chicago Political Equality League, which actually formed in 1894, and when it first started, its members were by and large, wealthy women. But as the Equality League continued to sort of do its work, it kind of expanded its membership, and it was in the 19-teens that people like Jane Addams, who you may have heard of, uh, and Ida B. Wells became involved. And the League began to kind of like work with women across social and, and ethnic backgrounds, and often worked uh, in tandem with an organization called the Women's Trade Union League, which was based here in Chicago. So we are talking at, at At the top of the episode about the event that occurred at the Congress Hotel when the Chicago Political Equality League transformed itself into the Chicago League of Women Voters 100 years ago. The very same day in Marion, Ohio, over 5,000 women from across the country came there to hear the Republican candidate for president, a guy by the name of Warren G. Harding. He was a senator from Ohio. They came to his home in in Marion on something that was known as Social Justice Day. And the way in which this connects to Chicago and Chicago history, on that very day, the Republican candidate was introduced by none other than the head of the Women's Trade Union League, Margaret Dreyer Robbins. Uh, She was a social worker, very kind of involved in in labor causes, and her husband uh, was an often progressive candidate uh, for, for the Senate in Illinois. So not only did you have this Chicagoan who introduced the Republican candidate that day, but before he gave his 90-minute speech, there was a parade, these 5,000 women, through the streets of Marion, and according to Tribune, uh, the one group that stood out was the contingent from Chicago. They stood out because they decided to appear as the women of all nations. So the various women, right, who are coming from all the different communities that made up Chicago, the Italian community, the Polish community, the Czech community, the Irish community, so forth, they all kind of wore their traditional costumes. Go Chicago. Chicago, Chicago exceptionalism. Chicago exceptionalism. Yes. That's right.
3: A great drama is transpiring in the tenements, on the pavements, and in the factories and shops of our industrial American cities. A drama of such violence, pungency and magnitude, a drama involving the lives and destinies of so many millions that it is incredible that so few people know of its existence and comprehend its faithful meaning. That caught my attention because we're living in that time right now, Mm -hmm. again.
0: That was Beverly Cook, assistant curator of the Vivian G. Harsh Collection at the Chicago Public Library. She was reading from and reacting to words by the novelist Richard Wright, Wright wrote those words for a brochure for the Parkway Community House which provided social services and also creative experiences on the south side of Chicago starting in the late 1930s. Among those creative experiences were plays produced by the Skyloft Players. In September of 1945, they released their fall season, which is why we're telling this story now. To learn more about the Skyloft Players, the Parkway Community House and its founder Horace We're going to return to a conversation with Beverly right now and ask her what one can find in the Harsh Collection at the Carter G. Woodson branch of the Chicago Public Library. Hello, Beverly. How are you doing today?
3: I'm doing pretty good. How about you, Paul?
0: We're doing well, as as well as one can in in the interesting moment that we we find ourselves.
3: (laughs) That is correct.
0: Uh, I want to introduce my my co-host here, Elliot. Hey, Bev. It's nice to meet
3: you. Hey, Elliot. Good to hear your voice, too.
0: Well, thank you for, for talking with us today. Um, so we've been talking about the Skyloft Theater. Um, one of the reasons why we're telling the story right now is because, as I mentioned earlier, they had announced their kind of fall season in September of 1945. Uh, even though the first plays performed there were in 1942, and, and the very first play was one by Langston Hughes, um, in which he actually took a, a direct hand in the production. And that was his play, The Sun Do Move. Um, but Beverly, If people want to learn more about Hughes or about the Skyloft or or, or the Parkway Community House, um, what kind of things could they find in the Harsh Collection?
3: A myriad of things. The Harsh Collection, which started in 1932, opened its doors January 18, 1932, under the direction of Vivian Boyden Harsh. And Charlemagne Hill Rollins was a mecca for not only the migrants coming from the South, but the old settlers' club and the blacks that already existed in Chicago. As Hall Branch was the first full-service library set in Bronzeville in the black community to handle some of their needs, it quickly became a a, a meeting place, a gathering place for all sort of people. And while while I don't agree with segregation, I will say that I'm a type of person that sees a silver lining on every cloud. Segregation forced people in the Bronzeville to walk and talk with each other so that you had writers like Richard Wright, Arnold Bontemps, Jack Conroy, Langston Hughes, uh, sociologists like Forrest Caton and Sinclair Drake all walking and living within uh, distance of each other, which we don't have today. So they all knew each other, passed each other on the street. This was really great because as Hall was opened in 1932, the Parkway Community Center, which was part of the uh, uh, Church of the Good Shepherd, opened up in 1939. And within two years after that, the Parkway Community Center was up and established. The name was changed to Parkway in about between 1942 and 43, I believe. But uh, Horace Caton was the director for the Parkway Community House, and he had the same type of vision that Vivian G. Harsh had, in that he wanted to have a, a community center where blacks could come in and read about themselves, learn about themselves, further their education, because so many of the migrants that were coming from the South were, not, were illiterate. They had worked the land all their lives, generations, so that they did not have a good sense of how to read or write or fill out, indeed, a job application. And Horace Caton's vision was to answer all these questions. And when you come to the Harsh Research Collection today, which is located in the uh, Carter G. Woodson Regional Branch on 95th and Halstead, you get a chance to delve into Horace Caton's papers and look at the, the development of the Parkway Community House and the development of the Skyloft Players. You can do the. Oh, we have probably the most <laughs> lenient, lenient operating hours in the city. Since we're open seven days a week, the library itself, but the manuscript department is only open Monday through Thursdays, 10 to uh, 11 to 8, and... Uh, there,
1: ten to four. Uh, how did the Parkway Community House kind of fit within the broader ecosystem of of, of things that were happening in in uh, in Bronzeville? So, I mean, I know that there's the Southside Community Arts Center, but are there other? What 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 makes what makes Parkway sort of unique?
3: Beyond Horace Hayden, who had such a phenomenal passion for living, I mean, you really should come in look read his papers. His lineage is was such that his um, old great-grandfather was Hein Revels, who was the first African-American senator from Mississippi in the uh, in America after the Civil War. And think in terms of that, to pull back on that bar is kind of high. His family settled, came from the West Coast. They were uh, newspaper owners, and he was educated uh, at the University of Chicago and, and other uh, universities around the around the country, and he had a sense of wanting to get the status quo, wanting to make a, a, a level playing ground for blacks in America. And when you think in terms of what was going on at this point, you had the WPA project going on, you had Horace Caden and Sinclair Drake working on their seminal uh, black metropolis, which was an overall sociological study of blacks Coming from the South, Black Settling in Chicago, the newspaper, the life, their stories. You had them also working on the voluntary churches and organizations in Chicago. You had them working in conjunction with that whole uh, group of sociologists from the University of Chicago with with uh, Parks and Worth. You had the opening of the South Shore, uh, not the South Shore, the South Side Community Arts Center, which was a the... Frankly, it's the only still-lasting WPA art institution that's still standing today. Uh, You had Arnold Bontemps and Jack Conroy leading the Illinois Writers Project in Chicago and utilizing the George Cleveland Hall branch of the Chicago Public Library to conduct a lot of their oral history interviews with the migrants that were coming from the South and the ones that had already settled as part of the old settlers' club. You had people like Ishmael Florey in Washington Park. You had the Communist Party really trying to motivate and, and move and, and get a black membership role really rolling. It was just a time, and oh, let's not forget the music strip. <laughs> I mean, from the stroll from down on about uh, 21st, 18 to 21st, all the way to 47th, you had Bronzeville as a thriving community of arts, of music, of churches, of businesses. It was on a self-contained center. And you had places like Parkway Community House and the George Cleveland Hall branches acting like universities outside of universities that were free and open for the black public to come in and utilize. You had people at the top whose main, I don't want to say mission, but their focus was to uplift the black race to show them what they could accomplish with education, with broadening their thinking, and actually to give them something to strive for. And I think that this was just this was a wonderful time of growth and vitalization in Bronzeville. And all of these places that we're talking about today, Parkway, Abraham Lincoln Center, uh, the Rosenwald Apartment hall, they were all within walking distance of each other. So I would say that from about 35th to about 51st, because uh, if I remember correctly, the Parkway Community Garden was located at 51st and um, Cottage Grove. And it wasn't just one single building. It was a group of buildings. So that they were able to have uh, nursery school uh, classes for uh, teenagers, uh, classes and people coming in to teach adults. Uh, They had a session called um, a forum where they would bring people from all over the city to come into the Parkway Community Center to talk about the world crisis of race or the struggle for democracy in China or the new world, Mexico, can good neighbors be brown, or the black republic of Haiti. All of these things was going on. So there was a chance for people to learn and touch from each other, to converse with each other. And remember, at this point in time, the Harlem Renaissance in New York is dying down because the money, because of the war and everything, the money is drying up. Okay, and that white patronage is about to, you know, go away. So a lot of the people that were strong leading figures of the Harlem Renaissance, like uh, Richard Wright, and Langston Hughes they came to the Midwest uh, Langston Hughes had been in contact with um, um, Forrest Caton for a long time as a matter of fact they'd always been in contact with each other and in our collection I had found a, a letter from hmm. Forrest Caton's wife go ahead
0: oh no no I was just curious what, what's in the letter
3: <laughs> well it's he was mad, I think, three times, but this letter, mm-hmm. you know, her name was Irma K. Wirtz. and her collection is also at Heart. In this letter, she talks about Langston being a guest at the uh, Parkway community whenever uh, he arrived in town. And she said that both of us had known Langston years before under separate circumstances, and he often stayed with us when he was in Chicago. This time, the project was sponsored by the Rosenwald Fund. When Langston arrived, he said he was working on a play and had me in mind for a leading role. Hmm. Soon I found myself planning a place for the uh, production. The third floor of the center was a large, unused room. With the help already available at the center, I designed and had a stage built in one end of the room. Langston and Horace announced additions. I got one of the leading roles in the play. I played the part of the mistress of the plantation. Being a lost with only the sky above the room, I called it Sky Lost Theater. Oh, wow. The cast mm. became the Sky Lost Players. It's things like that. Right. A story, a little, little, just a little a bit of information, but it sheds so much light on stories. And that's what you can find in our collection, little nibbits of information that will take a, a detective or a researcher on a path or a rabbit hole
0: that they did not intend to go down to, but it is so fascinating. And, you know, reflecting on on that moment in in Bronzeville's history and on the sort of work that the Parkway Community House did, which, you know, based on how you're describing it, in in some ways that site almost seemed like a a kind of version in miniature of, of things were happening in the broader community where you had, you know, politics, religion, social sciences, art, the community all kind of, you know, coming together and, and kind of working in, in these really kind of creative and innovative ways. Um, but when, when you reflect back on, on that history, Beverly, um, I mean, how do you think it speaks to the moment that we're in now? Are there any places that existent in Chicago today that maybe kind of, you know, carry on the, the spirit of a place like the Parkway Community House?
3: I think that we try in the library system to carry on that system and with the, new, the programs that we're constantly utilizing to try to draw the public in from, frankly, the, the cradle almost to the senior citizens. But in terms of the Parkway Community House itself, I don't think we have many organizations like that. We have organizations that have picked and chosen the things that they're going to concentrate on. Mm-hmm. Some will concentrate on mental health, Some will concentrate on job training. Some will concentrate on literacy and reading. But Parkway tried to hit all those things at the same time at once, and I think that was such a fantastic thing to do because it allowed people to see each other's uh, difficulties. It allowed Mm -hmm. people to see each other's needs, and it allowed people to, frankly, learn to respect each other because you saw the people moving from... What they needed when they came in to how they moved when they the self confidence that they had gained when they left the Parkway Community Center. I don't see a lot of that today, not saying it doesn't exist doesn't exist. It's just that I don't see a lot of that in the mm-hmm. organizations I see today. They're more money operated today mm-hmm. so that you almost have to know what you need. I think you were able to walk into the Parkway community house or into the uh hall collection back in the uh forties. With a sense of wonder, almost like a, lo- a new child being mm-hmm. presented with uh, a whole field of flowers, and you can pick which one you want. well, there's so some,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean there there seemed to be or Caton certainly seemed to preserve a, a space of openness and and mm-hmm. a kind of willingness to experiment so that they might be on the one hand offering child care, but then producing plays by Langston Hughes on on the upper level in the skyloft. But then even like Ebony Magazine gets its start at the Parkway Community House, which is this publication that extends mm-hmm. many decades um, beyond the community house and has a kind of lasting impact just not just on, on Chicago but but on the country as a whole. Um I'm curious you I'm know let me,
3: mm-hmm. let me let me let me back on to the sky law. Sure. Remember that Langston Hughes was also one of these uh, giant figures who had so much energy and passion for what he was doing that he could not land in one place. He couldn't stay still. So if you study Langton Hughes, you realize that um, he started theaters not only in Chicago, the Sky Law Theater in Chicago, but he also started a theater in New York and in Los Angeles before he would move on. Now, he wrote a play, and this wasn't the first play he wrote, <clears throat> for that Sky Lost Theater called The Sun Do Move, mm-hmm. and he presented it there. But from all I could uh, find out, that was the only play, because after he produced that one and wrote it and produced it and made sure that his vision for the Sky Lost Theater and its players was put in place, he went on to accept a position on the staff of the Chicago Defender, mm-hmm. and wrote for about 25 or 30 years those simple columns, which were later translated uh, transcribed into books.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, so but he has said that uh, one of the main reasons his focus was to create plays from a black perspective, mm-hmm. and to offer black playwrights and actors and prop people a field for perfecting their craft and to express themselves. And that's really important, because we're not saying these things didn't exist, but, you know, from the Harlem Renaissance, if you have white patronage, you cannot bite the hand to feed you, okay? Mm -hmm. And in Chicago, where you were on the WPA roads, which is the government, which is far away in Washington, even if they're sending money here, you had more freedom to express yourself. And for people like Langston Hughes and Richard Wright, this was really, truly important. Uh, racial consciousness, you know, mm-hmm. not wearing the mask, but being able to portray yourself seriously. So a lot of Langston Hughes' figures are about the regular man on the street, the regular black man on the street, his ups, his downs, his problems, his happiness, his frailties, you know, his failures, and it was really good. His, his work is not as angry mm-hmm. as Richard Wright, but it's just as powerful. And so that was the point, but you talked about um, Ebony. Right. Langston Hughes had a a correspondence with Arabelle Thompson, who was one of the managing editors of Ebony for over 30 years. The only reason it stopped was because he died in 1967, Mm -hmm. and that was the last letter he sent her. But in 1951, he was still being kind of um, formal with her, where he said, uh, Dear Airbell, this is November 30, uh, correspondence, 1951. He says, Dear Arabelle, thank you for your very nice note. I grieve at the passing of the Negro Digest, and it is capitalized. But yet, is a fine-looking and lively. I am glad that you are helping to keep Ebony up to standard, and I hope I will have the pleasure of doing some pieces for you sometime. I thought that was very... Uh, powerful in light of the fact that we know that ebony is no longer being um, right. published and that this is what uh, a writer of his stature had to say about negro that digest ebony and jet mm-hmm. And once arabelle thompson's papers are processed and open to the public i think researchers will be able to see that she was like a lich pen between mm-hmm. the writers of the harlem renaissance and the writers of the Chicago Renaissance, because she had relationships with with most of them, not only the writers themselves, but the publishers and the editors of newspapers around this country and around the world. So all of that type of information is available through our collections at the Harsh Research Collection.
0: And really quickly, Beverly, uh, before we wrap up today, um, I just want to talk about the the collections for a moment. So given kind of Mm -hmm. where we're in now, right, which is a very kind of challenging time. Um, I mean, what are, what are the best ways for people to get access to those collections and see things like the letters that you were referring to today, um, which mm-hmm. really kind of enhance the story?
3: You know, I am so glad you asked that question because we realize that we're living in a kind of uh, strange time. People are afraid to go out, yet and still there's a necessity that education continues and their their dissertations, their research projects have to continue to unfold. We've made things available for people uh, via the Chicago Public Library's webpage. You cannot come into the the manuscript collection without an appointment. And this is not only us. I think this is all the repositories around the country at this point. Uh, Public guideline is saying that we need two or three days for material to, to rest or self-isolate before we put it back on the shelf. So we're not letting a lot of people in to see the collections at once. However, right on the web page of the Harsh Research Collection, there is an appointment form where you can fill out saying, I'd like to come in and look at the Horace Caton collection on the next three Mondays from 10 to 4 or 10 to 6 or whatever and tell us what your, your needs are we will email you back, letting you know which appointments you can have. And then we usually start a conversation via the email on what your needs are because you know, Paul, how important it is to have that reference interview. A lot of people think they need this, but once you talk to them a while, you realize that that may be what they want, but what they need for their project is something totally different. Right. So we do it that way, but we offer them that. We also remind people that we have digitize some collections and some portions of collections and they can go on the web page to see those digitized documents that are available where you can see the totality not just the the finding aid which we have but the totality of the document like the letters that I just read we have blogs that highlight the collections that we have uh, in our repositories across uh, all three boards The special collection at Harold Washington and the neighborhood history collection at Salzer on the North Side. Uh, we try to tell people to look at the history maker. Our online collections, our uh, resources, are really fantastic because you know, Juliana Richardson in the Library of Congress has digitized all of those oral histories that she did over the over the years that she was operating. And if you want to find out about the Skylaw Theaters, you should look at the Black History Makers because Val Gray Ward. Hmm. Uh, Chuck Smith, all of those people talk about it in their uh, interviews with Julianne Richardson. Well, that's really and good so, to know. Yeah. Yeah, that is really, really good. It's it's fantastic. I mean, you got to love technology. Sometimes it's a headache, <laughs> but you got to love it because it's making things so available. And in this time of COVID, where we are close to the public, it's nice to be able to offer people an alternative. This right. forces them to do their research ahead of time, create a list of what they want, so that when we open, and we will open, they can come right in prepared to work and not spend a week, a week or two or three weeks doing the research that they should have done before they came. You know, So I invite you all to come to the Harsh Research Collection. When the doors are open, and if I can help you before the doors open like they used to be, just give me a call and I will do my best to help you.
0: Well, thank you, Beverly. This was great. Thank it you. was really nice talking with you today. Um, yeah. Stay safe. Thanks. Be well. We'll talk to you soon.
3: Okay. Bye, Alec.
0: Bye, Beverly. Bye. So once again, you know, I want to thank Beverly Cook for taking the time to talk with us and tell us you know, about what's going on at the Vivian uh, G. Harsh Collection and how visitors can access it during this challenging time. I hope that we'll all be able to go there in person again soon. Me too. Uh, now, Beverly, you know, led off her segment by quoting Richard Wright. Um, and Richard Wright would write the introduction for The Black Metropolis, which is the sociological work, groundbreaking sociological work, for which Horace Keaton uh, and his co-author, Sinclair Drake, are probably best remembered today. And that book was published, oddly enough, in October of 1945. So we were talking about plays at the Skyloft Theater in September of 1945. Uh, but just a month later, this landmark book would come out. And it's turning 75 this year. So if you haven't read The Black Metropolis, I highly recommend it. It it still holds up and is a kind of fascinating portrait of the Bronzeville community. So that's our show for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Beverly Cook. Our very special guest, the board president of the League of Women Voters of Chicago and Jameson, our producer, Annie Klein, and WLPN Radio. As for you, fine fellow Chicagoans, keep making history.